On Second Shot, we cover two new stories every week to find out what kind of wisdom the world is dishing out today. And at the heart of every one of these stories are people, just like you and me, who've had to overcome incredible odds, to face the greatest challenges, to struggle and fight back. But now, we're changing it up. In these episodes, we're skipping the headlines and going straight to the people that inspire us to grow, to be bold, seek change, and act courageously when the rest of the world may not. A second look, a second chance, a second shot. This is Second Shot Sit-Downs with your host, Jenny Anchondo. Hey everybody, Jenny Anchondo here. I have been, this is like a second shot sit-down that's a year in the making. I had booked Tenny McCarty, who is the founder of Shades of Hope Treatment Center in Buffalo Gap, Texas, a little more than a year ago. Pandemic went wild. It has been on my heart this entire time to have her come back because I think her, you know, her message is one that we really haven't talked about. We've, we've talked about a lot of different types of addictions and, and second shots. We have not really gone into the, the eating disorder realm. And I think that it's a critical topic now as it has been um, for a very long time. And so we're gonna go into some of her personal story and, and some of how, how we know each other, et cetera. But for now, let's welcome in Tenny. We finally <laughs> made we this finally, happen. Yes, in fact, the day that I was getting on the plane to come up here uh, is the day the pandemic started. Yes. And then we were gonna fly on to New York. I had been chosen as the, remarkable woman from our area and was going to New York to celebrate that. And it ended all of it. But I think we're going back. They're going to have it maybe in August. So okay. anyway, it's good to be here. Oh, Very well, good to be here. I mean, it's been, I've been thinking about you. Know, it was like the next month I thought, well, maybe she can come out the next month. Yeah. Maybe the next month. Maybe and it just kept And then we just kept getting worse. locked down more and more and more. Exactly. We yes. just kind of stayed in our little holes um, a little bit longer. So you guys, just so you kind of have some context on this and how I would even be connected to Tenny, I saw her on an own network show when I was living in Indianapolis, Indiana, many, many, like uh, several jobs ago. <laughs> and um, it, the show was called, it was Addicted to Food, oh, right? It and was Oprah named it. It yeah. was, <laughs> was that the appropriate name for it? I don't know. But, um, <laughs> you know, name. I thought at the time I'd, I'd struggled with an eating disorder myself for a long time and I'd gotten treatment you know, as you do, you try things, you go to things, you, you, your family spends a whole lot of money and heartache and pain. And, and I, I remember thinking, this is it. Like, this is the place I need to go. And I did. And it was transformative, life-saving. And I can't say enough good things about Shades of Hope and, and how it helped me. It's, I mean, it's true, Tinny. It was really like that show spoke to me. I, it's almost like a picture in my brain when I think about seeing it and thinking, wait, that's it. I think that's what could help me. And so I'm forever grateful for what you do. Um, and I'm just delighted to be able to speak to you now. Thank you for having me. Later. It's good to be here yeah. and good to see your pretty face. I mean, you're beautiful. So oh. it's good to be here. And congratulations on your marriage and your little girl. That's Thank wonderful. You. Yes, a lot's, a lot's happened since <laughs> then, has, right? Life uh, does continue on afterwards, which uh, I think is a, yeah. a beautiful thing. When, when I think about second shots with you, and I, I know a fair amount of about your life story, just from going to Shades of Hope and from, from your book and, and all of your works, I want to get kind of like in the nitty gritty from okay, the beginning let's here go for it. And, and rewind back to your own addiction struggles, right? Because you right. didn't come out of the wound running a treatment center. <laughs> no, 
it took a while. Yeah. Talk about your initial struggles with addiction or when you sort of first knew, okay, I've, I've maybe have this personality that tends toward addiction right. or compulsion. Yeah. Well, my mother was a prescription <clears throat> drug addict and alcoholic. Uh, and I came from a very dysfunctional home, and to make a long story short, I witnessed something real tragic when I was about four. Uh, and and some people do have tragic things to happen, and some don't. But what that did is that uh, triggered my eating. And I started eating at age four. The age your little girl is now. At the age That's exactly what I was just thinking. Like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Like, it can start then. And Food did for me what drugs and alcohol did for my mother. It calmed me down. And through her disease, I became like her mother. I became her caretaker. And we led a very reclusive life. I mean, it was just my mother and I. My sister was older. She left home. seemed like when she was three. I don't know. She was very young, 15 years old. Uh, my dad was a sex addict. Anyway, I won't go into all of that. But mother and I lived pretty much together. And I took care of her and she drank and I was driving by the age 10 and going and picking up her booze and feeding her, buying groceries. And so I kept eating myself up. By the first grade, I weighed 136 pounds, first grade. That is about six or seven pounds more than I weigh today. I was morbidly obese and it, you know, just a, kind of a guideline uh, or benchmark. Uh, at age 13, I weighed about 230. So I was a morbidly obese little girl, teenager, preteen, young adult. I ate myself up to 287 pounds. And, you know, I would try every diet. I would try, talk my mother into, I found out this doctor uh, lived in West Texas. I grew up in Odessa and uh, found out this diet doctor was in Midland. I was 13. Talked my mother into us going over there. And of course, I drove us and uh, he gave me a bunch of pills and, you know, and I don't know if doctors do that anymore. I hope that kind of doctor is not still working. But anyway, I mean, so I tried everything. I tried it and I could lose 100, 120, 130, 40 pounds. I did that five different times, but I could never keep it off. So this last time in 1972, I had the early, very early bariatric surgery. They oh, don't wow. even do that type of surgery anymore. The like man- the First, I'm guessing. Oh, yes. Yeah. And that doctor only did it on uh, 10 of us and only two of us lived. They died of, he didn't know how to treat us. He did not know. And all I wanted and what I heard, I probably made that up out of my sick brain. But what I made up was I could have that surgery still eat anything I want and not gain weight. And that's how it worked for a while for the first part, probably six or seven months of 72. And the weight just fell off at me because what he did, he made me a straight gut and everything I would eat, I would have diarrhea and I lost massive amounts of weight, but I also lost calcium. And I mean, I couldn't retain or absorb any you know, vitamins, minerals, anything. But the story I tell is our bodies want to <laughs> restore itself. And, you know, mine did. It started adjusting to the surgery, which people do that today. I mean, every, I mean, so many, we treat a lot of people that have had the surgery. and It's only a tool. I'm not against bariatric surgery if people do 
the mental and emotional side along with it. So anyway, uh, I started gaining the weight back and that was my biggest fear. One more time gaining it back. So I got up in my little pea brain and I thought, you know, if it is the diarrhea that's caused me to lose the weight, what I need to do is take laxatives. So I started with two and then four and then, and from 19, for the next 13 years, from 1972 to 85, I took massive amounts of laxatives. And I, by doing that, uh, I didn't keep the weight completely down. I mean, I gained 60 pounds. I went from, you know, and I don't like to do numbers, but I'm going to give you numbers. From Just about, so people can understand. About a hundred and, you know, I got out to about 130, about to where, where I am now, you know, <clears throat> through having the surgery. And then I gained back about 60 or 65 of that. I mean, I was about 190, 195. And that was my biggest, I mean, people all, I'm not all over, town, but so many people who knew me were watching me because I'd had the surgery. It was the magic cure. So I started gaining the weight back and uh, I got very ill. My, and this is what happens in eating disorders. And a lot of people don't talk about the physical effects of it, mm. severe eating disorders. What happened with me because of those, I got up to taking 100 to 125 x likes a day because they stopped working like any medication. And I thought, well, if I take more, if I take more, if I take more. Uh, and uh, this time I was a uh, program director of a drug alcohol treatment center in Abilene, helped uh, start that center. And I loved the work, but I was getting very ill. So I was going to an internist and, uh, you know, a lot of doctors don't like to treat folks like me because we don't tell them the truth. I did not once tell that doctor, you know, doc, I'm taking over 100 X likes a day. And you're working at an addiction treatment center. And worked. And, but we didn't know. I didn't know what an eating disorder. I'd never heard the word. I mean, I didn't. I was clueless. And so my, but I was getting very ill. I had no energy. I took one hand to put wind up on the steering wheel to drive myself to work. Uh, and what happened, I had two teenage daughters home at that time. Well, I had three, but two of them were also practicing uh, an eating disorder. And I never, we never talked about it. I would just say things like, stay out of my room, my bathroom, stay out of my medicine. Because after having the surgery, I was still driving to Lubbock, Texas, 185 miles away once a month to get diet pills for my doctor. So you talk about a sick eating disorder, I had it. And it was all about losing the weight, losing the weight. I was gonna be all right if I lost the weight. So I was going to the doctor, my liver was shutting down and my colon was literally falling out of my body. That massive diarrhea. From the pills, from, from the, the diarrhea, pills. from the laxatives, from all of it. From all of that. And do you think your girls saw you modeling it? Or do you think that it was something about their genes or something about their upbringing? That they all of it. All of it. They watched because they were raised by a morbidly obese mother. I mean, we'd go to Six Flags here in the Metroplex, you know, when the kids were little. They would have, and I was a young woman, they'd have to park me on a bench and they'd go ride and they'd come back and get me because I couldn't fit on any of the rides. You know, so they were, and they were raised by a morbidly obese mom. And uh, I know one of them made the decision she didn't want to be overweight. She also made the decision to not eat because 
as a child, she made up in her mind that her mother needed the food more than she did. So she's my recovering anorexic, not my, but she's my daughter that's recovering from anorexia. Uh, and so the other daughter has dabbled in bulimia and compulsive overeating. So, but we never talked about it. I, I would just say, but they knew what I, I mean, they were very competitive in sports. They were very good ball players, basketball players, and they were competitive in their weight. And so they were constantly doing the things that I did. You know, the Cambridge, I don't know if you ever heard of that. And then they'd get into that and I'd have to buy more. So, but it, it was a silent disease that was going on in our household. I didn't know it was a disease and we never talked about it. I would just say, stay out of my stuff. And then eventually a colleague kind of yes. called you out. She did. There was a young man. I'd hired a young man from uh, from L.A., hip, slick, and cool, recovering uh, drug addict, alcoholic, good-looking, sweet young man. And I went to work one morning, and he wanted to talk to me. We went into the library. And I always say this, that it's a uh, abusive to point out a problem without pointing out a solution. What Alan did, he started talking about my symptoms. And he said, well, if you started out, he said, Tenny, I think you're a bull. And I thought he meant I was gay. And I said, Alan, I think you're an idiot. What are you talking about? <laughs> and he said, I think you're a bulimic. I had never, I don't think I'd ever heard the word bulimic. And if I had, I didn't know what it was. I didn't know that I was practicing bulimia by taking massive exercise. Uh, I didn't know. I did not know. But my face was about as that color as dark as that brown desk from liver spots. It was, oh. I had a film of liver spots because my liver was shutting down. My hair was falling out. Uh, I mean, I could hardly walk, you know, into the group room. And Alan started pointing all of this out. And he said, I noticed you'll get upset in a group and all these guys go smoke. And I noticed you go to the candy machine and get two Snicker bars lock yourself up into the women's restroom, and when you come out, you're calmed down. How he knew to recognize my symptoms is his wife was recovering bulimic and anorexic. And they had a friend in LA, a psychologist, that was also recovering from the eating disorder. So when his wife, Carmen, uh, got real sick, she lived with Michelle for a year, and that's where she got her recovery. And Alan, started watching me. And I've always thought it was a God deal. It was absolutely, because I've prayed for years for answers. So he handed me a book, Alan did, called Fat is a Family Affair by Dr. Judy Hollis. I have it. And like I said, I just talked to Judy yesterday. We're good friends today. So he asked me if I'd read the book and then call Michelle because Judy was opening an eating disorder unit in LA the following Tuesday. And uh, Michelle was going to be the clinical director, and would, would I call her? Well, I did, but I had no intentions of going to California. I'd never been in an airplane. Now, how could I, this West Texas girl, get on an airplane and go? <laughs> You've got kids at home, uh, and a yeah. job. And, and, and so, so after reading do? the book, uh, I gave it to my husband. And because what they did, I did call Michelle. And Michelle said, Dr. Hollis is very strong about this. Unless your husband comes for some family work or your family, we can't take you. Now, I think she changed through the years, but that's how it was. 
So I told my husband when he came in and handed him the book, asked him if he'd read it. Uh, and he got angry. He said, this is just one more thing. You've done everything. You've done everything that you can know to do to like lose the weight. And, the and I'm sick of this. And no, I won't read the book. But he did. He took it to work with him. And he's a speed reader. And by noon, he came home. He'd read the book. He's a recovering alcoholic. Had a couple of years in Alcoholics Anonymous. And he had tears in his eyes. And he said, I understand now about that you have an eating disorder, a disease, an addiction, much like my alcoholism. And he said, if you'll find out when they want me out there, I'll go out there. And he was my best supporter for, for several years. People in Abilene thought I was nuts. They, you know, I was very well known in the recovering community. Right. When I came I, and I went to treatment, I didn't make it by Tuesday, but I was there Wednesday. And it changed my life completely. It was the hardest thing I've ever done going through treatment. Because mm -hmm. what I had to do is look at myself. I'd always been somebody's mother, somebody's caretaker, somebody's counselor, somebody, somebody. But I'd never really took care of myself or looked at, you know, who I was. And that's what I got out there. And also I was taught what's remarkable about that. Most eating disorder units don't treat eating disorders as an addiction and they don't use the 12 step process. They usually maybe refer them to a 12 step program, but very few use that process. And that's what I knew in working with drug addicts and alcoholics. That's what Hollis did. And so the miracle is that I got really every day in that treatment center in LA, what I was giving to clients at the Serenity House. Now there was components, you know, the, uh, with the eating disorder that, of course, we didn't do with alcoholic and drug addicts, such as body image and the food piece and the gentle eating and all of that. But they literally taught me how to refeed myself. But I also started working on those core issues. Now, that was the beginning. And then after that, all of my childhood abuse started coming up because I wasn't eating over it. And that's what we all we talk about. It's not what we're eating, but what's eating us. Mm -hmm. And I had known about the abuse, but I'd never addressed it. I played like it wasn't there. Abuse in your household or to, towards you? Uh, oh, yeah. My father. And, uh, and then just the sickness of taking care of my mother. I had no childhood. There was just a lot of abuse in my household. And so when I didn't have the food to ease that pain, those memories began to come up full blast. And so I went down to Florida, had met some people in the trauma business. And because by that time I was going to conferences all over the United States, gathering information and, and learning. It was eating disorder uh, treatment was very new in the United States. And so I'd go anywhere to learn from, you know, people that had been in the field. And so once I discovered the trauma, I went down to Florida for a 30-day trauma program. So I went to tr uh, treatment twice, but then I would go and do a four-day intensive, a six-day, an eight-day. But one day I woke up and I knew I was gonna be all right. I mean, the pain was gone. There was a level of forgiveness for my parents. You know, I got to look at where they came from. My Lord, they had a worse, you know, home life than I did. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't excuse what they did, 
but I've forgiven them. I cannot live in that bitterness. And I'll tell you, my mother was like my child and I worshiped the ground that my mother walked on. She never found recovery. She died when she was 87. Uh, it's a disease, prescription drug, well, any addiction. Sometimes it won't let you live, but it won't let you die. Yeah, she lived a long but life. But I put her in and out of treatment forever. And so she'd get a little help and then go home and then start back. Yeah. So, so what was it about, about why, why were you able to, you know, really like find a life outside of addiction and, and your, and your daughters were able to, to, um, why not your mom? What, what do you My mother, she too had a bad childhood. She was an orphan and the drugs and alcohol. I mean, she had a love affair with those prescription drugs. And it's back in the days that you could doctor shop and she was on first name basis with every doctor and Odessa, Texas, and in the surrounding areas. Mm -hmm. My mother is a good looking woman at one time. I mean, mother could have done so much with her life. At one time, many, many years ago, a group of uh, men, of course, and I love men, but I'm, you know, a little, anyway, uh, there's <laughs> a group of men that came to her and wanted her to run for mayor. Now, this was back in the 50s when women wasn't doing anything. And they ran her for mayor and there was, <clears throat> happened to be five men running and she came in second place in that mayor's race. So um, imagine what she could have done with yeah. her life as smart as she was, had drugs and alcohol not been her life. So. And do you think she just, what, what is it when somebody is not able to find more, more peace and wholeness? Is it a lack of commitment? Is it a lack of wanting to feel the feelings? I, with my mother, my mother and dad had this sick relationship. I mean, very sick. Uh, I, my sister and I, when we grew up, said that our dad had a split personality. Uh, he hated women, but he loved sex. And uh, he had women friends, and he was a law enforcement officer, and he was good-looking, wore those white Stetson hats and hand-tooled boots. And I mean, he had girlfriends. And my mother could, the only way she could really get his attention was by being sick. Mm. And he, you know, she'd get real bad and it was kind of like Sanford and Son. That was going to be the time. It was going to be the last, you know, upset. And I'd call him. I don't care where he was. Here he had come, sat at her bedside for two or three days. And that's what she lived for was that little bit of attention. Mm. And uh, it was a very... uh Oh, it was just a very sick relationship that I watched unfold between the two of them. And then I was more like my dad's wife. I mean, I did the housekeeping. I bought the groceries. I, my mother was sick all of her life, all of my life. Mm -hmm. And the story was that I started sleeping with my dad from the time I went home from the hospital because my mother stayed in the hospital. And I can remember, I mean, first 13 years, I mean, if, you know, abnormal becomes normal. Mm -hmm. I didn't know any different. And they kept us, we lived a very sheltered life. And I always said my sister escaped when she was 15. But I stayed there in that sick, I mean, 
my dad would say the only safe place, any people, the only people you can trust are the people inside this house. Well, he had it backwards. Right. But, but what are you supposed to believe as a child? Yeah. But there was something. <laughs> when I, at age eight, I've always been a very uh, precocious child. I could do things that a lot of kids couldn't do because I had to. You just have to when you're a child of an alcoholic. But I had a desire to live a different life. And at age eight, I started taking myself to a little Baptist church behind our house. And I literally found God in that little church. And from that point on, I knew I was going to be all right. I didn't know what it would look like. And I continued in that spiritual journey. And I went, I tried out every denomination that there was. You name it, I went there, you know. And that's what has really sustained me, is knowing that there is something greater than all of the sickness. And that, uh, and I've made it a spiritual search my whole entire life. And I'm doing, I do tinny talks uh, every Wednesday, and we'll be doing one in the morning. And uh, I've entitled it, uh, God's either everything or he's nothing. He either is or he isn't. And, you know, there's a lot of people who say they believe in God, but I'll tell you, and this is not a religious program, but I'll tell you, it's the spiritual part of my life that has sustained me, that that's where I am today. It is because of the God of my understanding. And He can heal any area of our life that we're willing to surrender to Him. But I would not ever, I believed in God before I went to treatment, but I held on to the food. I couldn't turn loose of the food. Mm -hmm. And I would be sitting on the floor and have a Bible in the <laughs> couch, and I'd be eating and reading the Bible and begging God to help me stop eating while eating. And it doesn't work like that. I had to do the footwork, and He blessed the effort. Let's talk about, you mentioned the 12-step program a little bit earlier. I think a lot of people are familiar with it, you know, for, for one reason or another, mm -hmm. their family member themselves, and, and how it relates to eating disorders. Because I think that's a lesser known utilization mm -hmm. right. of a 12-step program. How does that work at, at Shades of Hope, and how do you use those, those okay. components with your eating disorders? So we do a lot of different types of therapeutic modalities at Shades. We do a lot of grief work. We do a lot of trauma work in the past because, you know, what we say is it's the core pain that you have to work on. And if you don't, you'll trade off from one addiction to the other. So what's common for drug addicts and alcoholics getting sober, clean and sober, a lot of them will turn to the food. Now, we see food as an addiction. And so the, how the 12 steps come in, you substitute whatever that addiction is for drugs and alcohol, and those steps will work for anything. The first 10 steps are the 12 steps. Uh, and I'm not a spokesperson for the steps. Anyone can use the steps. But I'll tell you, that's what saved my life. But the first 10 steps of the 12 will tell you precisely how to live life. It won't tell you perhaps or maybe, but it lines it up. If you do the action and the footwork, there is no failure to getting well. Mm -hmm. the, the part about the 12 steps, it's a failure. People don't want to do the work. It's hard work. It's very it hard, is work. hard work. And you have to be willing to do it. And it's not a help yourself program. It's worked with God, ourselves, and at least one other human being. You know, someone that's been down the same road that we've been down on. You know, and that's why alcoholics, 
can really help other alcoholics and drug addicts, but they really can't help another eating, I mean, an eating disorder person because we need that identification because an alcoholic, and I've heard it said many times because I've got dear, dear lifelong friends in the program. Uh, and, you know, when I first came home from treatment, they would say, oh, Tenny, just have a candy bar. Come on, have it, you know, because I always have candy baskets, usually at most AA meetings. Come on, have a candy bar. You know, it won't hurt you. Well, it'd be like me saying, here, have a drink. It won't hurt. They don't understand, and I don't fault them. But food for me was like an addiction, like alcohol and drugs is an alcohol. Now, I will tell you, and this is my own, my own recovery, in that I stayed on a basic food plan for the first 20 years. I did not vary from that food plan. She did a food plan for 20 years. <laughs> never, I mean, never varied from it. And that was the recovery for you. But yeah. Now, God can and will remove that mental obsession. You know, the mental obsession is what starts with any addiction. We get to thinking about, you know, we wake up in the morning and think, I'm going on that on a new diet, mm -hmm. and I'm not going to eat today. And then we get to thinking about, oh, those cookies that we hid from the kids, and well, and that's all we can think about is something we got in the freezer or something we got in the cabinet. That's that mental obsession, the idea that overcomes all ideas. And it drives us crazy to we go get the cookies and eat them. And then we feel guilt and remorse and swear we'll never do that again. That's the addiction cycle. So the plan kept you on a plan. Uh, well, you didn't have to make a lot of decisions or think about the cookie because you just knew you weren't going to have it. Yes, and I uh, had support through twelve-step programs and through a sponsor. Uh, and there was no meetings in our area. I drove to Fort Worth every day for, I mean, every Saturday for a year for meetings because I did not want to die from this uh, from an eating disorder. And I was pretty much on the road when I went to treatment. Now, when people hear me talk. They'll say, well, I'm not that bad. At least I'm not that bad. You don't have to get as bad as I got. An eating disorder is very progressive. It's like any addiction. If a person has a problem with food, I will promise them if they don't do something about it, it will get worse. It's progressive. Uh, and it's fatal left untreated, you know. What are, what are some of the key components to your long-standing recovery. I know I know there's certain things that you just, or I don't know if you're still this way. Is it like, okay, you still don't do sugar or some of those other... Okay, so what I was going to say, God has literally removed the mental obsession and that disease part from my brain. And this is what I want people to hear, but I took 20 years of me staying on a pretty rigid food plan. You can ask my kids. If I didn't vary from that. I didn't. I had a fear that if I ever went off of it, I couldn't get back on it because I'd done diets forever. But this was a meal plan. You know, there's over 240 wonderful foods to choose from. Now, during that time, I ate no sugar and no white flour. I used to do wheat, but now, and so what happens? What, what's happened in the last 16 years? As food has taken its proper place in my life, I travel a lot with Misty. I mean, my, I eat with my children. One of the things, if people are going to eat like 
sugar or something that they think is bad. And sugar is not good for anybody. It's not. It is really, there's no food value right. in it. Yeah, no one's going to say it's a health food. You know, <laughs> it's, uh, it's good but the guideline is if you can take it or leave it. If you're at a wedding and can eat one of those little old bitty pieces of cake that they hand out and it not set up a craving. Now, with people who have that sugar addiction, that cake, that little bitty piece of cake can set up a craving, a physical craving. And then that mental obsession gets started and it says, go to the bakery and buy a whole cake. And I mean, people do that. I did it. I've done it. You know, now that's the part that has been removed from me. It is, I'm closer to being a normal eater and I've never known. How old are you, Tenny? I'm 78 <laughs> and I am younger than most, I mean, than my daughters are. I mean, not really. I mean, I can outwork most anyone. No, but really, I mean, the people who see the TV version, that's why I ask because I think it's impressive. I think people will be like, well, what's she doing? <laughs> I want to do, do what Tenny's doing. Yeah, but I eat basically the way that I ate before. I mean, three balanced meals a day and then uh, a snack at night. But I am not obsessed with the food. I can eat anywhere. For, I'll give you an idea. I have been wanting... Uh, and I don't eat a lot of red meat, but I'm not restricted from anything, but I've been wanting a good steak. And I got that in my brain that I, and I told Missy, I said, I want to find a good steakhouse when we get to Dallas and I want to get yeah. a good steak uh, because I just want, you know, a, a good steak. So we went to uh, a really, I mean, looked it up, went to a really nice steakhouse. Where'd you go? Do you remember? To Papa's. Oh, yes. So and uh, you know, fine dining. And that's something that I enjoy doing that I would not do when I was in my eating disorder. I wouldn't pay that kind of, of money to feed myself healthy, but I would spend so much money on junk food to sneak around and eat, you know. I mean, that's, and that's what, you know, my little husband passed away eight years ago. But anyway, he would always say when I was overweight, well, I don't know why Tenny's overweight. She hardly eats anything. Well, not in front of him. And that's what gets compulsive overeaters. Well, eating disorder, we do so much in secret. Yeah, I remember you saying you're only as sick as your secrets. Yep. And yeah. that's just, it's, that's long stuck with me Yeah. when you want to be secretive about something and, yeah. and what, what that's masking and what the, that's doing yeah. to you. And so what I had to do, and really no one told me this, I just decided I'm going to do this, uh, is to see, uh, and I do have uh, uh, an intolerance to sugar, but I wanted to see, could I eat sugar successfully? Uh, and what I tell people is do it with intention. Do it in front of someone, talk to somebody about it, you know, eat it, see how your brain feels, how your body feels. And if it sets up that craving that you want more of it, and two days later, you're still thinking about that piece of cake or that cookie and you want more, you might not be able to eat sugar, but everyone has to decide that on their own. Yeah. You know, no one can, I can't tell anybody that they're addicted to sugar. What do you, what do you say to somebody who is wrapped up in an eating disorder right now and thinks that that is how their life is going to be forever? What hope can you give to them? What I would say, and I was, I was talking about this earlier this morning, uh, because I did, Dr. Hollis called me yesterday and we visited, uh, without going to that treatment center, 
and having someone like Hollis that had been in my shoes that had wore the same dress size that I wore that in and go through that treatment and learn about an eating disorder, I wouldn't be here today. I didn't know what it was. What I would say is it is a disease. It's uh, you don't need to be guilty for having it, uh, but you're responsible for treating it and you can treat it. Don't give in to the disease. Uh, we're far more than a disease. We're not our disease. And I can do anything. Like I've worked for days in my yard. I mean, hard labor. And I love it. Had I not gone to treatment for that and then treated it from that point for the last be 36 years in September, had I not treated it every day, every day, every day, I wouldn't have a life. I'd be dead for one thing, you know. Uh, but I've, I've had, I have to treat it like the serious disease that it is yeah. uh, because it's just kind of always way, kind of way in the background waiting on me. All right, you think you're well, well, let's go do so-and-so. And I don't listen to those voices anymore. And I would encourage anyone that's bulimic, anorexic, or morbidly obese, and you don't even have to be have a lot of weight on you to have be a severe compulsive overeater. The disease is between our two ears. What I would say is get treatment, get some real help in inpatient treatment and deal with the core pain. It is not about the food. It's not about the substance, but that's what's going to kill a person if they don't stop the behavior, mm -hmm. the eating disorder behavior or, you, you know, overuse of the food or the underuse. But get to that core pain, and that's what we do at Shades. Yeah, it's an amazing program, you guys. The, the last thing I'll ask you is, and I think this is the toughest part and could probably be a whole different episode, but what does the family member do if they if they exhibit it? For example, there was, I mean, or with a friend or the loved one or the colleague, mm -hmm. I remember you saying, you know, don't don't offer an observation without an offer for help right. or something like that, just like your colleague did. Yeah. So what's a family member to do, especially one who, who doesn't have an expertise or a background in eating disorders or addiction, to okay. get help? What what bothers me is we have treated people that weigh as much as three, four, five, six hundred pounds. And then on the other end, we've treated them six, 60 pounds, 148, 70, 80 pound anorexics. Family members get so concerned about the anorexics and they will do an intervention and they will very lovingly get the anorexics some help because they see them dying in front of their very eyes. You get over here at the morbidly obese, we found, I mean, I've had maybe three families in 34 years of having Shades of Hope that have ever done an intervention on a morbidly obese person. I believe it because they get mad at the morbidly obese person. Well, why don't you stop eating? Well, put that fork down. Uh, they don't see it as the disease, the massive disease that it, that it is, you know. And we see eating disorders all on the same spectrum. We just act it out on different ends. And if they don't treat that inner stuff, I've, you know, a compulsive overeater can start losing weight and if they're not careful, they can go over here to the anorexic side and then the bulimic side. So treatment, 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 treatment. And that's the most loving thing 
a family member can do, you know, and if they can't do it, call in a, a interventionist, call Shades of Hope. You know, I couldn't do the intervention. <laughs> I was trained to do interventions, but that's the most loving thing, particularly the morbidly obese. I have such a heart for all eating disorders and all addictions, but you know, the morbidly obese get lost in the shuffle. And it is the highest rate, death rate of any disease in our United States is morbidly obese. You know, now they don't put that on the death certificate. You know, they die from heart problems, diabetes, all of the diseases connected with morbid obesity. And I think that just that comes from a, a judgment and a lack of understanding yes. in general from our population. Yes. There's a certain level of um, people feel elitist or looking down upon people yes. who are dealing with that. And I, and I appreciate that you structure it in the sense of an eating disorder or a yes. disease, right? That's mm -hmm. something that needs to be dealt with. Um, where can everybody find you? Where can they find the Tenny Talks, the website, everything? Okay, so uh, I do Tenny Talks every Wednesday at 10 o'clock. They can... Uh, go on my Facebook. Is that right, Misty? Yes, they're on the Facebook, I <laughs> they, saw them. <laughs> uh, and they can, you know, find out. And uh, uh, we do every kind of topic I've covered. So and we've been doing it for over a year. I love doing those tinny talks. And what that consists of is I'll have a topic and I'll talk and then open it up, you know, for the whole uh, group. I do that. Uh, and then, you know, call Shades of Hope uh, for any you know, and that one thing that we do, not everyone needs inpatient treatment. Mm -hmm. There are some who do, but uh, we do, my daughter and I do an intensive I've been doing uh, for like 35 years. Uh, and it's four day intensive. And uh, we do that once a month. And I still do that along with my daughter. We start one Monday, in fact, and I limit it to six people, but it's long hours. We start it. I mean, they start their day earlier than I do, but I start with them about nine and we go to nine at night. They get a lot in a short period of time. And what we look at is that core pain underneath. What is driving the eating disorder? If you don't look at that, and it's usually from childhood and it can be something small that's happened. It doesn't have to be any great big, you know, uh, you know, abuse, but a lot of times it is, so. Well, I so appreciate what you've done for me, what you do, what you, you know, what your work does for so many people, so many men, so many women. So thank you for well, coming on. You're amazing. Well, thank you for having me. And it's good to see you again. And you're just as beautiful as you were when I oh, met you the first time. So and, so, uh, you guys, we will link up the website on this episode. I'll also link up some uh, just addiction resources in general, because if you're listening to this, the chances are there's somebody in your life who could use some help or maybe it's you and we will link up Shades of Hope again. They're, they're in Buffalo Gap, but you can come from anywhere in the country to go uh, get all some over help the world. from them all over the world. Really, yes, good <laughs> reminder. Um, and if you enjoyed the episode at all, leave us a rating or a review and we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye everybody.